We're going to join uh, in a reading of God's word from one of the Psalms, Psalm 16, which takes us to the theme of the resurrection. And it's here right in this old Psalm of King David from something like 1000 BC. So I'm going to read the first two verses. And then if you would join with me, if you're, there's not going to be too awkward and you can do that uh, when it comes up with uh, the, verse seven for the congregation. Uh, let's start and read. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And then let's read together. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Colossians 3 verses 1 to 14. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways and the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, 
Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we've just heard from your word, the word that you've given to us to live by. We need to understand it. It's got depths that are so profound we could spend the rest of our lives plumbing them. We ask that you would come to us now, grant us that enlightenment and that humility to understand your word rightly and then to obey it, to put it into practice, to live by it, to feed on it and to be changed by it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would you change? Just one thing. Now, some of you are replying, only one? <laughs> the desire to change seems to be an essential feature, essential part of being human, doesn't it? Nearly all of us, most of the time, wish we could be different. Isn't this why you go on a diet? Isn't this why you're pounding the streets even during lockdown? Is this why you buy new clothes or make New Year's resolutions? Now, last December, a survey was carried out on the internet uh, that found the top five most common New Year's resolutions in the UK were as, follow as follows. Number one, to do more exercise and improve fitness. Number two, to lose weight. Number three, to improve diet. Four, save more money. And five, take up a new hobby. I wonder how many of those resolutions were actually kept. But, you know, change isn't just for the new year. Uh, to a significant extent, we all want to be different. We all wish we could change. We all want to change, but the power to change seems to elude us. We have some superficial victories. We have the occasional win. But deep down, you have that sneaking feeling that it's still the same old you. Now, perhaps you try and make a big change. Perhaps you the kind of person who often finds yourself looking on job websites. Maybe I could change by getting a new job. But sadly, there's a problem with that. A wise woman once pointed out to me as I was thinking about a new job, if you, if you go somewhere else, you know, you still take yourself with you. A young man once asked a pastor in his 60s how he was doing. And the pastor thought for a moment, sighed deeply and said, well, basically... I'm just tired of myself. Is that you? Every time you turn over a new leaf, you find you're still on the same page. You sense that if my life was a house, it wouldn't just need a lick of paint, it would need complete renovation. Well, look, the New Testament says very boldly, you can change. You can change. Real change is possible. And it's possible for a surprising reason, and it may not have been the first reason that came into your mind. Are you ready for this? New Testament says that real change is possible because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of his resurrection. Now, we're doing this short series at the moment for about five weeks on the, the doctrine, the teaching about the resurrection in the Christian faith. We're finding that the resurrection isn't just for Easter, it is for the whole of life. It changes everything. 
The first week we thought about how Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Uh, his true majesty and greatness was revealed in John chapter 11 when he came to the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus. And he demonstrated that he had the power to overcome even death. He demonstrated it by raising Lazarus from the dead with a word. And we saw in that very moving passage, in Jesus' response to death, we saw the heart of God, the response of God to human death. He was deeply grieved by it. He wept and he was strongly moved to overcome it. He came as a conqueror and he won a victory over death. So in John chapter 11, Jesus treats death as an intruder, an unwelcome intruder into his creation, and he defeated death. And then last week we thought about resurrection confidence. We found that the resurrection gives us certainty, which is what we need. It, the Bible is at pains to tell us that it really happened. It gives us the evidence from multiple perspectives of the empty tomb and then the evidence of multiple people over multiple times of eyewitnesses who saw the risen Lord Jesus. And therefore, because of that, because of that certainty, we know that Jesus was exactly who he said he was and that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. If he just made all this grand teaching and claims and promises and then died and been buried and put in a tomb, none of that would have actually come to pass. We needed God to raise Jesus from the dead. In other words, the resurrection is God's signature on the deal. He's signing that the package of salvation and forgiveness and peace with God has been accepted and delivered. It has been delivered. And without Jesus' resurrection, we would never know that. Now this week, we're turning to a third aspect of this teaching on the resurrection. And it, it may be a little bit more surprising. It's not the first one that springs to mind, even for people who've been Christians for many years. And it's this, that the resurrection brings about transformation in the lives of Christians right now. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you can change. And that's what we're thinking about today. His resurrection means our resurrection physically in the future, but spiritually right now. That means change. Now, I know this seems quite conceptually remote. It might seem a bit abstract, but it is a key to living the Christian life. So I want to spend some time with you today in two of the finest passages from the Bible that explain this truth. Both of them were written by the Apostle Paul. Both of them were written from prison. And scholars think they're written about the same time. And they're written to churches in the country that we know of as Turkey, modern day Turkey, used to be called Asia Minor. And they are the letters to Ephesus and Colossae. And as we explore the dynamics of resurrection change here, I want us to notice three movements. And these three movements will be the three points of the sermon. New life, new vision and new habits. New life, new vision, new habits. First of all, new life. Turn, if you've closed your Bible, please open it up again to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to give you here this narrative of the new spiritual life that God gives us. And this is the story, by the way, of every single Christian. This is every, all of our stories. And I have to say, the beginning of it is not flattering to us. It is an ugly picture. Look with me at chapter 2, Ephesians, verse 1 to 3. As for you, all of you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now this is how we all begin, according to the Apostle Paul, according to the Bible, we all begin life by being spiritually dead. Paul says that three things are involved in this spiritual death, this spiritual deadness. They are a familiar trilogy, the world, the flesh and the devil. Now, all three probably need a bit of explanation. What's the world? It doesn't mean the physical planet, the world that God has made and loves. The world is a system of life that is organised without reference to God. I'll say it again. The world, in the Bible's usage, in this usage, is a system of life that's organised without any reference to God. It's a way of doing life without God ruling it, ordering it, overseeing it, without being submissive to God. That's the world, and we all live in that world. That's where we're born. Secondly, there's the devil. Now, the devil is not the red figure with horns and a pitchfork and cloven hooves of, of popular ideas and of the medieval period. The devil in the Bible is, is a, 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 a dangerous, malignant, spiritual being, a personal being, not just a force, an actual personal being, a fallen angel who is active behind the scenes in human life and is responsible for much that is evil in societies and in individual lives. That's the devil and his demons. And then the third aspect of this deadness is what's called here the flesh, or some versions call it the sinful nature. And again, this is, needs a bit of explanation. The flesh in the Bible is not your body, because we know that God loves the body. He's made the body. He's going to resurrect the body. But it's the corruption in our lives, the corruption that sin causes in the whole of our existence. When sin dominates a person so that it rules their thoughts, and their ambitions, their desires, their aspirations, their cra- and they obey its cravings and, and, and they obey its thoughts. That is what the Bible describes as the flesh. And it's the way of life we were all born into. Now, now notice this here. This is the default condition of every man, woman and child. It is where we are born and where we remain if we are left to our own devices, spiritually dead. Now, physically, we may be alive and strong. We may be doing well. We may look healthy. But as far as God is concerned, we are spiritually dead like a walking corpse. Now, can I ask you, have you come to terms with the Bible's teaching on this matter? Have you accepted it? Because it really is foundational to everything else. It really is the absolute foundation of being a Christian. Christianity is not about trying harder to be a bit more nice and to do good things. It's not about changing your ideas and beliefs about God and reading your Bible. It's not about going to church, taking communion. At the foundations, a Christian is someone who has come to terms and accepted God's diagnosis that they are spiritually dead in their transgressions, their law-breaking, and their sins. So in this state, which we're all born in, God does not look on us with pleasure. 
In this state, we are twisted versions of who we were made to be. We're distorted by sin. And verse 3 says, like the rest, that means the rest of the world, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That means we're under the sentence of God's just condemnation. We had as much chance of spiritual life as a road-killed animal with the tracks of a lorry over it has a chance of getting up and running around in the fields. We were dead. Now, if you're dead, clearly acquiring some religious behaviour isn't going to help you. If you're dead, becoming a little bit more moral isn't going to help you. If you're dead, <laughs> what you need is new life. And the Christian story is this. That's what we all were. We were all dead, but then God did something. Look at what he says next in verse 4. God did something. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we, dead, we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. He made us alive. This is the next movement in the Christian story. God looked on us with love even though we were hateful to him, and he reached into our lives. He came into our lives. He gave us new life. Christians believe that any spiritual life they possess is actually a gift from God. They didn't come up with it themselves. Now, we all know this, actually, instinctively. This is why we, we pray for people, for God to save them. If we believed that they did it themselves, we wouldn't be praying that. But we know God must move. That's why we, when we think about how we became a Christian, how we were saved, we thank God for it. We don't thank ourselves. We know it's all of God. It's all a gift. So all spiritual life is given to us by God, a free gift out of his gracious generosity and motivated by love. Now notice how this happens. Verses 5 and 6 make this crucial link. We are given new spiritual life, it says, and raised from death by the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See, it's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that takes us with him. We're swept up with him into his new life and even into his new rule over the universe. God is the one who unleashes new life into the world through Jesus. And his resurrection. And that's because God is the God who gives life to the dead. He always has been like this. And the whole Bible, you know, is full of the wonder of this. It's not that the resurrection is sort of plan B. That God, having seen the failure of the Old Testament, suddenly thinks, right, we'd better do something new. What about raising Jesus from the dead? Actually, you know, we already read Psalm 16 earlier in the service and saw that there was a resurrection hope right back there with King David. 1000 BC and even right back at the very very beginning of the Bible we find God giving life to non-life so the creation of human beings what were they made from what was Adam made from the first man the Bible says dust God took the dust of the earth and from it he made a living breathing human being and then a few chapters later we have the wonderful story of Abraham the father of faith and Abraham and his wife were waiting for a promised child a miracle baby and they eventually gave up all hope of it because they were well past childbirth and conception Abraham's body it says not putting too fine a point on it was as good as dead he was nearly a hundred years old and Sarah was well past childbearing 
well past childbearing. She was in her 80s, I think, and her womb was dead, it says. And yet we find that God promises and delivers new life with the miracle baby Isaac. And you know the name Isaac means he laughs because they laughed about it. They laughed originally in disbelief and then they laughed with sheer joy that God could bring life from non-life. And then later on in the Bible we have the prophet Ezekiel. The nation had spiritually died. It had abused God's promises and his word and had disobeyed him again and again and again and had gone and spiritually committed adultery with idols and eventually God judged the people and they were overrun by their enemies and they were taken into exile but the prophet Ezekiel was given a vision by God of a valley full of dry bones imagine a sun-bleached valley somewhere in the Middle East and there it is full of skulls and the remains of bodies and skeletons all dried up all the flesh gone and it's just a valley full of dry bones and Ezekiel kind of tiptoes his way in trying not to tread on anything and God says watch what I'm going to do and as Ezekiel watches in the vision you know the old song the leg bone connected to the thigh bone and that and 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 as he watches these these skeletons come back to life and the bones come back together and flesh comes on them and what stands in front of him is a living breathing army of healthy well individuals from a valley of dry bones God giving life to a dead nation this is what God is about. He's the God who gives life where there is death. God gives life to that which is not alive. Dead dust, dead wombs, dead bones. God is the giver of all life. And therefore, when we come to the New Testament and we find the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we see that this is the climax of what God has been doing all through history. That's what it's about. New life. First of all, we're given new life by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So before we move to the second point, I want to just pause again and ask you respectfully, have you ever come to God and acknowledged his verdict on your spiritual condition and confessed your spiritual deadness and asked him to give you new life? Now, you may have been a churchgoer for many, many years. You may be a person that knows their Bible well. You may say your prayers. But have you actually made that foundational step, that foundational move of coming to God and acknowledging your spiritual deadness and asking him to forgive you and give you new life? You have to start there, friends. You have to start there. New life. Secondly, new vision. We're going to turn over to Colossians. A few pages on in your Bible, Colossians chapter 3. And we find here that with this new life comes a new perspective, a new way of seeing new way of seeing ourselves and of seeing our lives and reality, uh, we might say a new vision. Now, I always used to be quite proud of the fact that I uh, had 20-20 vision and I was getting well into my 40s and was really quite a little bit proud about this fact. And then I found uh, that we were with our staff team on Monday mornings and I was reading the Bible or other documents more and more like this. Uh, getting further and further away from my eyes. And I realised that uh, something was going on when I started making elementary reading mistakes because I couldn't actually see what was in front of me. And a friend said, yes, I had noticed you were peering. So uh, one of my kids went to the opticians and I cheekily asked the optician about reading glasses. And so here we are today. Uh, vision, having the right vision and seeing 
things correctly is absolutely critical. Now, this new life, this new life that God gives us is accompanied with a new way of seeing, a new perspective. And it is absolutely critical that we grasp this if we're going to change. Let me give an illustration that will be familiar to all of us uh, here. Whether you're married or not, you understand the concept of marriage. I'm going to show you. Dan, is that, what does that look like on screen? Can people see that? You see here, this looks like the ring out of Lord of the Rings. But I can assure you there's no, there's no dodgy writing on the inside. My wife gave me this ring in August 1999. Uh, so we got married in the last millennium. And, of course, the ring symbolises a huge change in a person's life. Now, my wife, Melissa, and I are doing uh, marriage preparation classes at the moment with two couples at our church. This is something we do most years, and we're really enjoying it. And what we've noticed as we're doing them is that marriage is really one of the, the very few, very big transitions in a person's life. One of the, a small handful of, of very, very big transitions. Because the young, or not so young, the person getting married has to come to terms with what the new life means. Now, I want you to think about a newly married man. He's got his wedding ring, goes on the finger. Uh, now, that's, that's fine. But now, you see, he needs to make an effort to think through and to act like and to feel like a married man. He is not his own anymore. He belongs to his wife. And this doesn't always come easily or quickly because we're creatures of habit. The newly married man or woman's life has changed. He or she now needs to deliberately work through what it's going to mean. So their time, their, 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 how they spend their evenings or their days has to change in light of the new reality. Money is no longer their own. It is completely shared. And so that any financial decision is discussed with the, with the partner. Now in this text, Colossians chapter 3, Paul uses one of the most striking phrases in the Bible. Now let me just read through the first few verses again from Colossians 3 with you. And we see this new vision, this new perspective. Since then, he says, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice in verse 4 this striking phrase, Christ, who is your life. What does it mean? This is redefining for the Christian. This is redefining who we see we are. What he means is this. If you're a Christian, you have an entirely new identity. You are no longer your own. Christ is your life. Your life is Jesus. Your interests, they're the interests of Jesus. Your aims and ambitions, his aims and ambitions. You are, in fact, united with him. Now we could put it like this. What is true of Jesus is now true of you. What is true of Jesus is now true of you. It probably might not feel like it, but it nevertheless is the case. Just as when a young person gets married, the very next day 
they are in that state whether or not they feel different it is now true of them and they have to live accordingly now in this passage there are two major things that Paul says are true of Jesus that are true of you they are that he died and that he's been raised now Jesus died we know this everyone who's heard of Jesus probably has heard about his death it is one of the most famous central facts of history millions of people all around the world today are actually wearing a crucifix either on a necklace or on a, on a pin or something it is the symbol of Jesus death Paul says here when Jesus died you died with him Christian you died as well now that means it's true for you when Jesus Christ died he took the penalty of our sin upon himself. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross. The one who knew no sin, he'd never even known it, was made to be sin for us. He dealt with sin in one crushing blow. He died. He was crushed. The penalty of sin was borne by him and then taken away. And therefore, for the Christian believer, that is now true of you. It means that your sin has died as well. You no longer belong to it. It's no longer your master. You no longer belong to this world. You're no longer bound to the old way of life. It died. You used to live for this world, for its aims and its dreams and ambitions. You used to be preoccupied with self, with living life without thinking about God. You used to live for you as number one, for your own personal fulfillment. But now it's over, Paul says. It's, it's done. This is the radical truth for Christians. When Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. Your old life died. You're now set free from it. You're severed from it. It's the past. It's history. It has died. So don't go back to it. It's no longer you. You now have to be true to who you are now. And that is that you've been raised. Jesus was raised. Literally, physically, we've been thinking about that for the last few weeks. He wasn't just resuscitated. You know, there are people who die and they, they're, you know, literally dead for a few minutes. And then medics do their, their marvellous work and they, they somehow get those things and, and, and get their heart restarted or they're breathing air into their lungs and everyone's uh, panicking. And somehow the person comes back to life after a few minutes and then everyone wants to know, what did you see? You know, and you get these stories about, well, I, I saw a light and I was going towards it and I heard some voices and spooky things. You know, that is called resuscitation. And it happens after a few minutes. But that is not what happened to Jesus. You can't be resuscitated over 40 hours after you died. Your body's in a tomb, stone cold dead. What happened to him was far more dramatic. He rose with a new kind of body. Now, it was recognisably him. People knew it was Jesus. And he appeared to his closest friends and associates and ate with them. Uh, he talked with them, spent time with them. That It was him. But there was also something recognisably different. He had a new body, not just the old one, patched up by a plastic surgeon. Paul calls it a resurrection body, a glorified body. Now, this body cannot die. It is incorruptible. Not will never be abandoned to the grave won't ever decay so when we say Jesus was raised we don't just mean he came back in his old body we're talking about a whole new state of affairs that has now begun the resurrection life the era of the resurrection life commenced 
when Jesus rose on Easter Sunday. So his resurrection is the start of something new, something really big. Not just that Jesus' resurrection is proof that he is God. It is that Jesus' resurrection is proof that the new world is coming into existence. He is the firstborn from among the dead. And the firstborn will have many, many, many brothers and sisters. There will be countless others. Verse 1, Paul says to the Colossian Christians there in Turkey, Since you have been raised with Christ, you have been raised with him. In the past tense, what does he mean? What is true of Jesus Christ is true of you. The old way of life has died. The new world has begun. It's a whole new order. It might not look like it. You might not feel like it all the time. But it is true nonetheless. Your new life has already begun. You have joined the new order. When Jesus rose from the dead, your new life began. Now look, we just pause here. Can you see how radical this is? You see what it means to be a Christian? Do you see what Christianity is really about? This is so much bigger than taking a few religious beliefs on board. It's about embracing an entirely new identity. And with that, a new way of life. It's about being taken out of the old order of death and beginning a new existence in the new world of life without end. That is the real you now, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God. So what is faith? Finding your identity in Jesus. So we have to see our lives now with a new perspective, new vision, to help us see it clearly. To think like a risen person. To ask, what are the new concerns for me, the new priorities? To see that the new life will overflow into new behaviour new conduct, new habits. And with this, I'm moving to my third and final point, the third and final point of this, um, this movement, which is new habits. We thought about new life, thought about new vision and perspective, and now we're looking finally at new habits. Now, habits. Why did I choose the word habits? It maybe seems a little bit of an anticlimax. And the reason I've chosen it is because of a play on words in English. The word habit is how we usually use it. It can mean a regular practice, uh, something that you do again and again. You know, he was in the habit of uh, going for a run every morning, or we, we got into the habit of having a walk every, every evening, or we, we think about quitting the habit of smoking. Habits are things that we do, practices that we do again and again. But also, here's the old-fashioned meaning of the word, habit meant clothes. It meant what you were dressed with. So as archaic use would be, uh, the, a, a horse rider would be wearing a riding habit. Or the old monks and nuns, you know what their, their long, loose-flowing garment was called, was called the habit. And I've deliberately chosen this word habits to have both of those meanings in this section. Because the new resurrection life, the change comes through new habits, new practices and new clothes. And both of these meanings are here in Colossians chapter 3 when we think about the new life of resurrection change. This is the really important stuff, uh, the, the things that we put on, the practices that we have that makes us the kind of people we are. Because we wear our lifestyle, we wear our habits, we wear our attitudes like we wear 
clothes. Just look again at Colossians 3 verse 12 to 14 and look about these things that we put on every day. Put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see that word there twice, the phrase was put on, like clothes. Some translate, translations have it, clothe yourselves with these things. And there's some very important things here that we have to clothe ourselves with habitually. Firstly, there's compassionate hearts. That means a sympathetic pity and a concern, a tender concern for other people's needs. To be compassionate, you have to really care about someone else and how they're doing. You have to give your heart to them and open yourself to their pain and give them your energy as much as to your own needs. That's a compassionate heart. Put it on, he says. He says, put on kindness. And that means being helpful, beneficial to somebody. Carries with it the sense of being generous, of putting our resources at another person's disposal. Then he says, put on humility. That means having a modest or actually a low opinion of your own importance. It's the exact opposite of thinking that the world should revolve around you. C.S. Lewis described humility in a, in a famous passage in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, don't imagine that if you met a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you, of course, that he's nobody. Probably all you will think about the really humble person is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little bit envious of anyone who seemed to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. The really humble person is actually thinking about you. Then he says, put on meekness. That can also be translated gentleness. If you're not impressed with a sense of your own self-importance, then it will lead you to be gentle with other people. Courteous to them, considerate, thoughtful, thinking about their needs. Then patience. Wow, that's challenging. The quality of waiting calmly, even though frustrated. Bearing up under provocation and misfortune without being irritated and grumpy. Waiting. Now, if we're going to live well in community, I think we all know we need these qualities, don't we? We know this. But there's even more. Verse 13, Paul says, bear with each other. That means put up with each other. Endure that, that behaviour that grates, that, that habit, that irritation. Just bear, bear with it kindly. And if you have a complaint against someone, be ready to forgive each other. Forgiveness is required when someone has wronged you. And to truly forgive, you've got to let the matter go and don't make them pay for it. And then he says the final garment, as it were, the belt that ties the whole outfit together is love, this virtue of self-giving that sums up the Christian character. Now, just imagine a whole world where people lived like that. Wouldn't it be beautiful? I'd want to live in a world like that. And so there is our wardrobe now. There are the habits. That's what Christians are called to put on every day. 
That is the high calling of the Church of Jesus Christ. And it is beautiful. If we all lived like that, we would have a taste of heaven. Now, if we're honest, when we look at that, I think we see things about ourselves that we wish were different. We see things about ourselves that I, I don't like what I see. I look at that list and I think, God, have mercy on me. Some days I fail to be like this even before I leave the house. But the hope for the Christian is this. Christianity is not for good people. It's not for people who are better than others in any way. It's not for people who've got it right or who are morally superior. It's for real people, people like you, people like me. It's for people who are prepared to take a look in the mirror and say, God have mercy on me, I am a sinner. I am spiritually dead, give me new life. Who are prepared to come to God and say, give me that, that new perspective, that new vision, so I can see that now I am in Jesus Christ and I've been raised with him. And then to say, Lord, give me these new habits, these new practices of life and speech and thinking and mind and motivation to realise who I am now in Jesus. I'm, I, my time has sadly come to an end today. There's so much more we could say. But just notice three, three puts in this passage. Verse 5 says, put to death. There's an active putting to death and dealing with these ugly sins that, that characterise the old way of life. Be busy killing sin or sin will be killing you. Put it to death. Secondly, put off, verse 8, put off those old ways. Just listen to these things. He says, um, rid yourselves, put off all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off Put off the old self with its practices and then put on, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator and clothe yourselves with those things that God has given you. Now, we know Jesus, don't we? That's how we came into the Christian faith. We know that Jesus went to his death on the cross willingly for the love of those who were his sheep. We know he gave himself completely and he sacrificed all that he had. We know that he was crushed, betrayed and abandoned. And that through his death comes our new life. And that our adoption papers into God's family are signed with the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, can I ask you, if you're a follower of him today, to ask God to give you this new life again. To give you that new vision and perspective and the power to, to and put in place those new habits in the week ahead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and its challenge to us. But it is not a bare, difficult, harsh challenge, but one that is full of love. Help us to embrace and enter into the resurrection change that you have promised and pledged with Jesus and make us like him, we ask. Amen.